0: The U.S. Army Cyber School is a training program which trains cyber soldiers and leaders to be adept in cyber military strategy and tactics. In order to teach these skills, the Cyber School uses a system they call Courseware as Code, a workflow that allows updates to the curriculum in a reversion-friendly fashion similar to Infrastructure as Code. Ben Allison teaches at the U.S. Army Cyber School, and he has put work into developing the training program and the ongoing lesson plans. Ben joins the show today to talk about how the U.S. Army manages curriculum through Courseware as Code, as well as the work that he has done to improve this workflow over time. Ben is also speaking at GitLab Commit 2020, which is GitLab's upcoming conference. You can register for GitLab Commit yourself by going to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash gitlabcommit. Thank you to GitLab for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Ben, welcome to the show.
1: Great to be here. Thanks for having me, Jeff.
0: We haven't done very many shows about military and the software used in the military. Could you explain how software is used in the military and give Git as an example of a piece of code that is used in the military?
1: Uh, so in my particular experience, I am uh, assigned as a faculty member at the Army Cyber Schoolhouse. So my experience with using Git in, in, as a software development tool is primarily focused on on that environment. And so the rest of the Army, there are development organizations that use different tool suites, Git being one, GitLab, Atlassian, different development organizations across the DoD use different tool suites. But the Army Cyber School, we use GitLab and Git primarily as a way to manage our curriculum. And so the way that came to be prior to me arriving at the school around 2015, 2016 timeframe, the school first was created in 2015. And so there were they were kind of, they got their first students created in 2014, excuse me, uh, first students in 2015. And so they were kind of acting like a very much a startup culture. So they had the flexibility because they had such a tor- short time frame to build their, their courses for their first students, which usually the Army gives you three years. They had less than a year. So they had the flexibility, more or less, the, the political uh, flexibility to do what works and get things done rather than to wait on bureaucratic systems of what may be in the past. So they had a lot of opportunity to innovate in a way that might not otherwise be possible in a a more established institution within the Army. Uh, So for them, they were looking at how can we manage our courseware. The Army traditionally has a three-year cycle that updates at a very slow pace. It's all using binary data formats such as Word documents, PowerPoints. It gets stored in a, a web interface where they upload the documents and then download them when you need to instruct. And so for us, we wanted to be able to have more flexibility where we could manage courseware and then applying agile software development principles, and then also be able to update and manage the course the courseware without having to quick go through the tedious process of using these other outdated systems that were designed for more uh, static types of curriculum that don't change very often. Uh, so for us, Git was a natural choice for those of us coming into the schoolhouse who have a background experience in software engineering. So I am a computer science major, so I haven't worked in the army in a development role personally, but uh, many have, and that influences the decision to use GitLab. So for us, instead of using uh, Word documents, we use markup languages to track our curriculum, and then we use the CI pipelines to build that curriculum. Same thing with infrastructure as code. We use uh, different formats. For us, it's heat templates and OpenStack, and then we use pipelines to deploy it. So for us, that's, that's the, the framework for how we, we chose to use Git, primarily because it was available and we had the freedom to do so because the organization, organization was just being stood up and the leadership was willing to assume risk by allowing us to innovate in ways that might not otherwise be possible.
0: Courseware is a term that this conversation is going to focus on. Explain what the term courseware means and how it applies to this conversation. So
1: in the Army, when they have curriculum development, where can be. I'll frame it this way: when you when you join the army, every there's different specialties for different uh, sections of the army. So you have armor, would be people who drive tanks. You've got infantry, the people who go and do the very stereotypical army infantry things. You've got field artillery, they fire cannons. You've got aviators who fly helicopters, and you've got things like signal corps who does communication equipment. And the cyber branch, the cyber branch was created similar to the signal corps, where signals more IT, cyber is more focused on using IP-centric and RF-centric computing space to create offensive and defensive effects in support of uh, the Army and the U.S. government, so the the Department of Defense at large. And so what that really means for us at the school is we're developing courses to support soldiers coming into the Army and the officers, enlisted, and warrant officers who need uh, the technical theory that supports all of the operational context. The operational context is all the stuff that in the cyber branch they can't really talk about what they're doing or how they're applying the theory in some cases but but for us we are strictly worried about the technical theory that underlines all of the the operational application so for us it's windows fundamentals linux fundamentals understanding operating systems and how they work uh, and then understanding networking tcpip then full stack of networking and understanding it enough to apply it and then security concepts both from offensive and defensive perspective whether you're trying to defend an Offensive actor or you're on the offensive side. You need to understand all of that theory that goes behind exploitation How to defend how attackers hide and so on and so for the school when they talk about courseware They're talking about for example the cyber common technical core is a module that Every cohort whether the officers are enlisted are required to attend and so for them This course is the overview of operating systems networking and security And so the courseware is the facilitator guides that go to the instructors the student guides that go to the students, and then the infrastructure as code that deploys interactive ranges for the students to to work on from the classrooms, or in this case, during COVID-19, from wherever they're working from in a remote location over a VPN.
0: Okay, so you've mentioned courseware, you've mentioned Git, and you're talking about curriculum management technologies like PowerPoint and Microsoft and PDF. These seem like separate worlds. If you're talking about office management tools, that's at a higher level than something that you would need to do version control on. So what's the relationship between the version control stuff and the traditional office suite?
1: Right. So in the traditional army, you would, this is something that would, if for anyone who's ever been to a government school or something around the government, you often, when you go to a course, it's kind of, the, the general stereotype is you kind of have a pulse and you sit in a class and you sit through PowerPoint slides and you answer some very canned questions that are checks on learning. And then you move on to the next thing and nobody ever fails and it's not hard and you just exist and you get through it. And then you go to your unit and you actually do your job and you learn your job or your unit. That's the stereotype of of how training is done in the Army. And that's uh, not always accurate, of course, it's a stereotype. So that's, that's how in some cases it's, it's like, that's not how the army, obviously one student's always improving, but that's, that's a, a character of of how it could be. And so when people talk about office documents in the army, you'll, you know, death by PowerPoint, there's sometimes there's certain modules that are designed such a way that the army says you are going to learn about this and you sit in a PowerPoint and someone flips through slides and then you're done and you do it for a certain length of time and they brief the slides to you and you're done. So the school, cyber school doesn't want to be slide driven. So instead of being slide driven, in PowerPoint, we instead are we have facilitation guides that are stored in markup. And we can also do slides using ASCII, Doct- or ASCII Doctor and uh, Reveal.js, the technologies that you, know, you run it through ASCII Doctor, which is a, takes the markup language and then spits out HTML on the backside. And so we do sometimes use slides, but we're not trying to be centered on PowerPoints. Instead, we're trying to use the software divine principles to facilitate learning through hands-on interaction.
0: Give me a little bit more of a description for how a course within the military proceeds.
1: Yeah, so it, it kind of depends on where you're at and what the objectives are for the specific course. So for some schools, you might, you'll, you go in and for, for the, for we're in the training and doctrine command, trade TRADOC, you'll come in, there's a part of the course that's kind of designed for someone coming to your specialty in the army. That's designed, everyone goes to the same part, so the common course, it's the, the piece that everyone goes through. And then next you'll have a, a technical block that's specific to your branch. So if you're in a, a branch that goes out in the field a lot, you have know, field training exercises that might take up the entire time. Uh, in the cyber school, it's focused, we have the same common core, and then they approach that with a more technical flavor to, to learn, and then they have a field exercise, but their field exercise. And rather than, they, they take along computers and they do things like mess with Wi-Fi and, and RF based things out in the field. But then the technical blocks, for the cyber school, it's broken up into we do, we modularize it. So we take a, a module of programming, for example, and then we, we could give that to different cohorts and take that module and spread it around. So we're, we're focused on the module within a specific course for a specific work role. Uh, same thing for the Cyber Common Technical Core. That is a nine-week course where you would come in, you report to the school, and as a part of your course, you go through different modules and the instructors will teach you so, And when it's not in a pandemic condition, you go into the classroom, everyone comes in, you have classrooms that are connected to our virtual training environment. So inside of that network, it's a closed off network, and then they can deploy the ranges or in COVID conditions, it's a little unique right now. So we have a virtual conferencing through Microsoft Teams or BigBlueButton or some other virtualizing technology or classroom virtualization technology to make a, a virtual classroom on your browser. And then you then have VPN access to the training environment again. And so you'll go through all the training. You'll go through a morning lecture of, hey, here is a topic we're going to talk about today. Today, we're learning about operating systems. Today, we're talking about Windows. Here is a discussion of the boot setup of how Windows launches from all the way booting up. Here's how the difference between the kernel and the user space. And then they will have a graded activity in, uh, in the afternoon that's facilitated through a gamified environment. For us in particular, in this course, I'm talking about CCTC, they use a the Flag web interface to give exercises inside of the, the virtual training area that correspond to whatever the lecture was for that day. And so they get the, the theory, and then they get the hands-on application, and then they do that iteratively throughout the entire nine-week module. And so it's the same thing for that module, and then there's there's a programming module that's two weeks, and then there's other different courses that get put pieced together in that same fashion in the technical blocks and then when we use when we talk about courseware as code, that is the part where it enables us to deploy that in the back end without necessarily having to manually configure all those ranges. We just write it once using the the infrastructure as code and deploy it into the back end.
0: So again, there's infrastructure as code and you have this term courseware as code. Can you Talk a little bit more. What do you mean by courseware as code?
1: Uh, so in this case, I guess when we contrast it again with, with your, like you mentioned PowerPoints uh, and those other things, rather than tracking that if you wanted to, if you made a PowerPoint and you had 10 slides and you wanted to change one of those slides and you want to see who changed it and when they changed it, we, we wouldn't be able to do that necessarily. You could potentially do it on the shared drive or some other version control system, but PowerPoint isn't really designed for version control. You save in git or a version control system that's based on text then you have to you'll get a binary blob because powerpoint is essentially a zip file underneath and you can't see changes at any granular level between files it's going to take up a lot of disk space when we say courseware as code instead of that courseware the courseware would be any instructional material necessary to teach a lesson objective and lessons are broken up into they call them terminal learning objectives and learning steps so kind of your outcome and then the steps to get to that outcome those all Come from those, all get the, all the material necessary to teach that outcome is is the courseware. And so, for the cyber school, when we want there to be interactive classes, we have both the, the theory. And so, that's instead of using PowerPoints or Word documents or PDFs that the instructors would refresh on. So, here's the guide for the instructor that would then be tracked in ASCII Doctor, which is a markup language, or Markdown, which is in the markup language, where the courseware is the, the instructions for the, the instructor or the guide for the students so that they can reference it's the website that would provide all of those guides to them whether it's a, if it's in a web format it's the slide decks that might be shown to the students if there are slides uh, so the, all the courseware is all of those components to support the learning objective and so we track all of those in gitlab and so when we track it in gitlab we don't want to use traditional formats that office and powerpoint and, and all of those those type of formats we want to be able to do it in a, a lightweight we want to be able to edit in a lightweight text editor and then see by line version control of when things change. So the code in this case is the, the code products are predominantly ASCII doctor, Markdown, pipelines to convert that into other formats, such as websites. And then additionally, there are, uh, like I said, the courseware, so that would be then a cloud init script. So basically when you build a virtual, you define a virtual machine template in YAML, which is a, a template is a, an, another language to you know, define it's it's often used for infrastructure as code. You define your your network, and then you would later then define the user data fed into each virtual machine. So you could say, I have a network with three subnets and 10 virtual machines, and I'm going to feed the user data into each one. And so the courseware would be, in this case, an exercise that the students go to this virtual machine and and complete some task to find uh, a flag in the virtual machine, or if you connect to it through several hops, if you're learning how to tunnel through networks or, or whatever the exercise might be. The courseware in that lesson is the instructional material for the instructors, uh, the instructor guide this guide for the students, and then the prompts and exercises for the students. And then finally, the, the infrastructure as code necessary to deploy that exercise. So an instructor would build it once and then it's deployed and we can deploy it at scale for 20 students. So then we never have to worry about the person who designed it, if they leave or they, they move in the organization or they quit. We don't have to worry about, well, they knew how to design it, and we can't figure out how to design it again. And we don't have to worry about students having unequal environments. Everyone has the same environment because it's all deployed from the same source code. And if we have to make a change, we just change the line in the source code and can see who changed it and why they changed it. And we get centralized control over that approval process because you have the main branch, and then you'll have your, your development branches, and they make changes, and they approve it by some approval authority. And so that all packs together as the courseware.
0: These are really interesting examples of training exercises. Can you talk to another training exercise?
1: Uh, yeah, so so tying back to Cyber Common Technical Core, this is, uh, this is what I'd say is the most mature course in using courseware as code. In the security module, which I had, I actually had opportunity to write some of the, the days in that lecture. When I was a cadet at school, I spent a lot of time in doing Capture the Flags. Uh, those type of competitions where you do inter capture the flag like nyu hosts one every year so when i did that i i worked on a web exploitation lesson so i was trying to teach students hey here's an understanding of of the difference between a client side and a server side relationship so in my instance i built the the facilitation guide in ascii doctor and then i built the docker containers that would deploy into the virtual training area and and that would be that's openstack essentially a private cloud so we use templates to deploy that. And then the Docker containers give each student an exercise I built where they'd have websites that they could do, they'd understand client-side vulnerabilities versus server side vulnerabilities and things like that. So it's all tied back to open theory, applying that theory in an exercise, and then they would, in this case it was model after Kefler flags, so they once they exploited some uh, cross-site scripting or SQL injection or whatever, however the scenario was designed they would get a flag. And so that was, for them, it's a one or two day exercise. The intent there is not to create mastery, but just to help them understand the types of exploits and why it's important to, to apply defensive tools against websites, for example.
0: So why is it necessary to have these kinds of training exercises? What are these training exercises preparing the military engineers for to do?
1: Right, so... So the the cyber branch has uh, essentially two primary customers that we, as the institution, the training institution, support. So at the joint level, there's the cyber mission force, and that supports the United States Cyber Command. And at that level, they're the ones who are in charge of uh, providing offensive and defensive effects. So they're defending American interests, and then they're they're pre- they're prepared to. Uh, So in a state of war, they're prepared to conduct offensive operations. So, so they're, they're kind of in that, that staging, whatever that perspective, where they're, where they're preparing for something in the future, just like all the rest of the military is more providing readiness. So that's the same thing with the offensive force to provide a a readiness capability. And so for them, our goal for, for that is they're, they get, they get to the operational units and they have very poorly defined problems. When I, when I draw compare back to the traditional army. If you have an Abrams tank that was created in the 80s, it's been around for about 40 years, very little changes. So if you're trying to train someone how to use that, it's very checklist-oriented, it's very established. Not much is going to change. When it does change, you know it's going to happen well ahead of time. Meanwhile, when you have uh, the cyber forces, you go out to the operational force, you don't really know what you're getting into because there's, one, it's very new, things change very often. And the problems people face are very dynamic. So if you're asked to help defend an asset or a network or a piece of equipment or, or anything like that. And you may not necessarily be able to train someone for every possible combination, but what you can do is train people how to solve problems. And so our primary goal with our curriculum is to give people interaction with solving problems where they're, they're not necessarily, we're not necessarily giving them all the answers ahead of time. We're just going to give them a problem and give them the opportunity to solve that problem. And then we're there as instructors to help nudge them along the way and so we're trying to build the problem solving that becomes muscle memory so then when they get to the technical force and they're, the operational force and they're trying to apply these technical concepts in a way that they may not have ever been taught we we can give them the skills necessary to find the answers themselves and become problem solvers so that when they get to hard technical problems they can solve them on their own even if we didn't necessarily have the foresight to know which technical problems they would need to solve
0: so I can imagine that in this kind of world, you're constantly needing to adjust the curriculum. So how does the, the rapid pace of curriculum adjustment map to what kinds of technologies you need to manage this courseware as code?
1: Yeah, so in this case, a lot of our changes that we get, uh, so I guess there's a couple, a couple as you can answer this. There's one, the changes we make on the fly. So if we have a curriculum and we know something's wrong with it, we can make instantaneous changes. So if there's a typo in some sort of formatting, we can, we can fix it. If there's a, a lane doesn't deploy properly, we can fix it. If we want to add depth or richness to a training environment, we can update the coursework that way. There's more official processes within the Army to provide feedback from the operational force that will say, hey, you're not teaching these skills and we think you should be teaching those. Uh, so that's a three-year process. And so the army does, it's called a really terrible acronym. It's a CTSSB or a critical site task selection board or something of that nature. But they bring all these people in and they sit together for two weeks and say, these are all the new things you need to learn. Uh, but that's, and then it goes back to the schoolhouse and they're supposed to update everything. And then within three years have all the implemented to do it again. Uh, but that doesn't really work in a technical branch where three years is a huge length of time when we're talking about information security. So for the school, one of our intents with courseware's code is to provide through GitLab the ability for people in the operational force to say they get to the unit and, hey, I would love if you would teach this instead. So then they can go into GitLab in the public repos where students have access to and make issues and say, hey, we, would, we think that you should teach this. And so then while a, student, a single student's feedback isn't necessarily a cause to change anything, if we get enough feedback or if more, more than one person says it or if it's someone who's like a, a higher level representative – Could we could take that feedback and then follow along an approval process where the course manager could eventually approve that issue and make the change or could decide it's not? And then at some point, if we make changes uh, that are meaningful or change the outcomes, we would have to then mirror that with uh, the official processes to approve it in the what's called training development capability or the web interface I referenced before that still tracks a lot of our curriculum for the for trade doc standards to keep us approved under the trade doc regulation. But but we also then are able to. And our approach to do that is through tag releases. So when we get to a tag release, we'll push that tag release back in the training development. And then we can kind of iteratively improve little bits. And then once it gets to a, a, a threshold that the, the school has uh, set, we'll, we'll update the next one.
0: As far as an update, can you tell me about what kinds of Git workflows you're using? Who is involved in the review process?
1: Yeah, for us right now, it depends on the level of, Of the change so for the way traditionally things work with software development as most people most you you're probably very familiar with you have you have your release branch and then you have development branch and they're tied to issues and we try to implement that as much as possible one of the interesting factors or side effects of work of applying a software development principle when your instructors are not all software engineers is that doesn't always uh, work in practice and People aren't always familiar with it. People aren't we're even familiar with sometimes with Ask Your Doctor. If they're really good at understanding networks and teaching networking, they may not necessarily be a software engineer. So when they come on board, we kind of get them up to speed, explain the process, and oftentimes people fight us and they think it's dumb. And then by the time they've been here a couple of years, sometimes people move on to other things. And one of their co- part of it comes is like, it's like, yeah, I really, I got bit by core source code. Like, I love the way we do things here. I'm going to take it with me to my new job. So if they stay in instruction and things like that. And so, the, but the process for developing an approval process for this. To get back to your original question, is primarily if it's a low low threat issue, then it will go to a one of our. We have instructors who are contracted, and then we have civilian instructors who work for the government, and then we have course managers. And so the the contractors will make changes, perhaps, and then the civilians will approve it if they're the government civilians, and if it's a significant change, and the course manager approve it, and if it's some other change that's actually going to change the outcomes or the learning steps or things as we have captured the definition of the training in, in per tradeox regulations, the, the, the higher headquarters that approves everything, then that has to go all the way up there. So that's the part where once we get to that threshold, it goes up to a, we can no longer use software development principles. It has to go through a, the normal army system, but we, we try to balance it so that when that happens, we we limit the number of times we have to make changes that are so significant, and it has to go up that. So try to do it right the first time and then minimize the number of times you make so significant changes, it's changing the outcomes or the resourcing or requirements or things like that.
0: On the surface, it doesn't seem that curriculum management would have a complex CICD workload. Can you tell me about how your pipelines, your CICD pipelines are taking Center stage in the course content generation process.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So, from from the course source code, from the, ask the 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 content perspective, not the infrastructure, I kind of break it up in two pieces. So the course would be the the guides and all that, and then the infrastructure is all the stuff that goes into our private cloud that we have we host in house uh, for the for the markup and in all those languages. ASCII Doctor. We primarily use fairly simple pipelines that will take the curriculum and build it into uh, a static website. So we use two two primary technologies for this. We use Intora, which is primarily based in ASCII Doctor. So you build your website and your guide in ASCII Doctor and then it runs through a pipeline and deploys it to GitLab pages. That one's fairly uh, simple, not very complex. It's really just a build and deploy stage, two stages in the pipeline. However, there, there's more complex uh, pipelines and that's where the infrastructure's code comes in. And so one of, one of our instructors actually, Brilliant individual. He's a marine instructor, actually, because we have students who are in the Marines who work for us, and we teach Marines as well at the cyber school, the Army cyber school. He went took it on his own, and when he saw the pipelines, he built a, a pipeline that what he calls the range deployment automation framework is his title for it. But it goes through, I think it's seven or eight stages, and it pulls down the code, and then it uh, deploys the student ranges, and then it takes the output of those ranges and it feeds into. CTFD, which is a capture the flag framework uh, that's open source, and it builds a custom interface for the students based on their deployments, the outputs of the deployments. So if it gets a DHCP IP address or gets a float IP in OpenStack, that gets fed into whatever gets deployed for the students. And then it builds exercise prompts for students based on what was deployed from the CI pipeline. And then it builds OpenStack or builds CTFD in OpenStack. And then finally, it'll go through. And some of this is still under development. How how clean everything works perfectly because this is a we're still iterating on, on some of these more advanced uses. But it will then go through and ensure everything is deployed properly to make sure nothing fails. So all the activities are deployed. We want to go through and have a script go through and check each activity to make sure everything deployed properly to make sure a student doesn't get to a great activity and it's broken and we don't know it. So that I would say that single instance, that deployment framework, is the most mature implementation of, of using CI pipelines to deploy infrastructure.
0: Give me a little bit more of an overview of the tooling that you've used. You've now mentioned Git and GitLab and OpenStack. Tell me more about the tools that you're using.
1: All right, so so OpenStack is a it's a private cloud technology. So when I mentioned OpenStack, with that comes all the supporting technologies, which is direct object storage to staff. You've got your compute, you've got your networking, and all those different technologies under the hood, KVM Kimu, which does your virtualization, your hypervisor. We also have a designate included, we have containerization in our, I think we use Zoom, which is, there's a couple different t- containerization technologies in OpenStack. Uh, so we have all of those to support the, the private cloud piece. Within our classrooms, instead of using Windows, we use Debian as our Debian with a Gnome, I think Gnome 3 for our, our, our student workstations, and that gets networked into the virtual training area. So everything that we deploy in OpenStack in the, the public range is, is accessible from the classrooms. And then we also have, in some other tools tooling we're using right now, and this is, goes back to the having the flexibility to kind of innovate on the fly. As we were in, in the pandemic, when things were shutting down, we wanted to get people distant, to do distance learning as quickly as possible. Uh, and so our leadership were willing to assume risk and let us kind of do things differently by deploying our own Big Blue Button instance in Azure. And so we deployed that in Azure, and then we now have Big Blue Button, which then facilitates like a virtual classroom instance. And now the government has brought on Microsoft Teams, so it's less relevant now. But and initially, when when things were first, out, there was an initial outbreak, we were the only school across the army that was able to adapt and not miss any of our. Some of our functional or kind of secondary courses were canceled, but all of our primary training has gone unaffected. And, and so far, knock on wood, we have not had any uh, outbreaks. So, um,
0: Yeah, I mean, since you mentioned it, when you sat down, you, you said you had just gotten back home from work. And uh, that was a, a foreign concept to me. That's not something I had heard in, uh, in many months. Why can't you just do everything remotely?
1: Yeah, so in this particular case, uh, we had uh, a lot of things we can do remotely. So for the Army, there's different cohorts that we teach. So for officers and warrant officers, where we, we know that they have personal computers, this is one of those things, again, we're, we're, we're assuming this is not the normal way the Army does things. It doesn't expect people to bring their own equipment. But we know that they all have the money and the resources to, to have their own Internet connections and their own equipment. So they are working from home and conducting class remotely. Now, our enlisted populations, they're in the initial entry training, so they're straight out of high school. A lot of them may or may not have computers, and they don't have their own residence. They live in the barracks. And so for those populations, we don't have necessarily the ability to give everyone computers in their barracks with internet. Now, if there, are, if there is a contingency where we had to get to that point, uh, we are working to posture ourselves for that, of course. And, and they're, they're working very hard for those to be able to do that. But we can't necessarily have, right now, all of our enlisted training instead of Canceling class, we don't have the ability to or the approval to put it all in the barracks, but we, what we do is we spread out the classroom. So we have some instructors still come in, but they are everyone's wearing masks, and then they'll do, and instead of doing side-by-side, they'll do maybe every three desks, they'll be spread out to be six feet apart, and the instructor will be um, separated, still be far apart, and they're also wearing masks. And so that reduces the risk there so that even if there was uh, someone who was unknowingly infected or asymptomatic, they will not... There's very little risk that they would affect anyone else, and, and so I, I'm really, I'm really proud of our command here. They've actually been very proactive from the very beginning, and have taken very necessary precautions. And we're in Fort Gordon, we're in Georgia, so so we're uh, we're taking precautions to to do the best we can to protect this the population on base, where we have enlisted soldiers in the barracks who they can't get out of. Uh, they, they're essentially isolated, and so we, they can't go anywhere. But then we also don't want to get them infected because they're in close proximity, so. The Army at uh, 4.9 has done a very good job of maintaining that. And hopefully, uh, if all goes well, well, we'll continue to.
0: To revisit the kind of exercises that you are digitizing or formalizing in the courseware as code practice, you, you've mentioned this capture the flag term a few times. I think we should actually clarify what that is. What is a capture the flag exercise?
1: Right, so this is uh, this borrows from kind of the more the, the hacker culture so when I referenced when I was a cadet, there's these, the, the basic premise of capture the flag from a, a, a offensive or defensive sometimes scenario is you have a discrete challenge. They'll be like, Hey, here's a vulnerable web application, or here's a vulnerable binary. Here's a, a reversing challenge. And you take the file and you reverse engineer it. And when you reverse engineer, it, you find a token or a string or some unique, unique string that is identified as a flag and you submit to the scoreboard and you get points. Uh, same thing with the web exploitation. You exploit a database. And there might be a flag hidden in one of the the admin hash, or or something like that. So this is a common practice in, in throughout industry for the capture flag formats. But then the great thing about the format itself, outside of the, a challenge with capture flag, is often if you're a new person and you're trying to get into it, capture flags can be a lot of fun, but they can also be demoralizing because usually you'll start with maybe a few easy challenges and it gets really hard really quick. But the format itself allows you to distill a large amount of curriculum into discrete individual skills. So you might, the first time, if you're starting at the very beginning, you might ask someone to list files in a directory, and one of the files might be a flag. So this isn't necessarily how basic we start in our curriculum, but as a, as a concept, especially if you're reaching out, applying this to more entry level, then you might have people change directories, then you might have them load, show the IP address. and So you start working through commands in each each challenge would be you do the challenge, the students have to work through the problem and figure out how to solve it. So they're building problem solving. And then when they find the flag, uh, they get instant feedback of, oh, you did it right, you did it wrong. So it's very iterative. And then when you get feedback, it builds confidence. And then as you if you are able to design a, a capture the flag challenge, a series of challenges such that the, the, the slope of difficulty gets is very gradual slope rather than a steep slope then students are able to build confidence in their own problem-solving ability and are much more willing to keep working and keep trying. Because one thing about the information security space is sometimes the difference between someone who can, uh, in a capture flag or in some towns solve something and someone who doesn't is not necessarily that they have differences difference of skills. Of some, or some one person might just be willing to spend 10 hours looking at a problem or a week or a month and hacking through something until they figure it out. So, Part of that is a confidence that if I just keep figuring this out, I'm looking at this, I might be able to figure it out. And so a capsular flag is, in my mind, a way to help build that self-confidence that, hey, I can solve this problem because I just keep working at it. And then you build it up gradually, gradually, gradually. And then before you know it, people are, are getting to more complex skills and they're developing more problem solving and they're getting more self-confidence. So then you get into the harder topics. And so when we use that in our course where we have exercises built based on lesson plans and so the students will get to try this, but then it also has some things that will go above and beyond the lesson plan. So students can kind of spread out or like they get done with everything or they know everything already in the lesson plan. They can try more hard concepts that might go above and beyond what they've learned. So that helps us identify people who stand above their peers who might be, uh, eld- might be able to fast track or go to a certain assignment or, hey, this person could be good for a specific work role in the operational force because they're good in this area. And things like that. So the Capture the Flag, in my mind, for the cyber School and also for across any educational institution, I think pairs very well with CourseWare as code because you can tie the CourseWare and the Capture the Flag interface, capture that all in code, and then deploy it to some infrastructure cloud, whether that's Azure, Google Cloud, AWS, or something like OpenStack that we self-host or whatever cloud you want to use. You can, you can pair that all together and package it up nicely and then Eventually, we don't do this at the school, but I would love as like a personal goal to get this type of concept to a place where someone could, off the street, pull things off the shelf, pull some courseware's code package off a repo, run deploy in a pipeline, and then they point it at their cloud and they get a full-featured interface with Coursera, uh, the infrastructure, and the gamified interface all packaged together. Uh, so we, we at the school uh, last summer sponsored sponsored from a manpower perspective. So some of us volunteered to support a cyber patriot camp in uh, downtown. We partnered with some some local partners in, in Augusta and to run this for high schoolers for free. So they paid all the bills because they're the private ones. They have the money. The government can't pay any money, but then we volunteered our, our hours as military members to help instruct. And so as a part of that, I spent a lot of time on nights and weekends building a capsule flag interface for that, where. I, was, I, I tracked all the challenges in code and then build a pipeline to build a zip that could import in a CTFD. And so then I can, out of the box, just have a, a really quick capital flag interface that, that does that, that somewhat gradual slope to help students learn. So I think this can apply both for the government and then also for partnerships between the government and private sector as well.
0: Do you ever wonder why isn't there more dedicated software I could use to managing this? Does it feel like you've kind of patch together this ad hoc workflow that, for some reason, there's not some tool out there you can, you can manage it with. I mean, you, the fact that you have to use Git to manage this courseware, doesn't that feel a little like the, the, the space is immature or there should be some off-the-shelf thing that should do this?
1: I think GitLab would agree that our use cases, especially for, for their tooling, is, is very unique. I don't know if they have anyone else who uses it quite like we do, at least right now. I know there's uh, others who do use it to track uh, markup languages and so on, but the full feature pipelines and everything, I agree. It is a, it's piecing together, gluing together a bunch of technologies to make something. But I I know there are, I think that the difference, there are people who probably do these type of things in, in products, but, but for them, they're proprietary. And so it's going to be very expensive to, to they'll, they'll come up with something and piece it all together. They might even deploy things with pipelines, but they're going to try to sell it for a lot of money because that's, that's, how, that's how things work. And, and so I think what I'm really excited about with core source code and kind of applying kind of that libre that open source mindset is for me, I care a lot about, I want a uh, uh, service is kind of a value of mine. So I want to give back to the country and give back to the communities. And so for me, Coursera code, I think is a tool to kind of reduce the barrier to entry for someone who might be underprivileged or grow up in an environment where they didn't have money or, or something to pay for a $5,000 course or something like that, where they do have all those things, but they keep them, they have those technologies kind of, they develop themselves in their proprietary in house and, and kind of open it up for people to be able to share it. And so for the school, in the past, this is a value the school has. And sometimes we're able to do this and sometimes we're not. But we would like to, like to be able to share as much as we can. So sometimes you can and sometimes you can't. But certainly when we are able to, we try to keep things public and open so that so that we can give back to the community for that. And so our GitLab, we have some things that are private and closed off, like class materials, but the public's content that's there is actually public. So as in as much as we're able to, within government regulations and such, with curriculum. If it's not releasable, it's not. But sometimes we are able to get things reviewed to be releasable. And I, I would love to point to our instance right now. But in the past, we had our our pipeline from our GitLab pushed to public repos, but it doesn't happen right now. Just because of uh, the review process can sometimes be challenging. So I can't point to anything right now. But it's certainly a value we would like to, to keep pushing forward.
0: Tell me more about some of the technical problems that you're facing right now in developing better courseware as code workflows.
1: So for me personally, I, I am uh, assigned to building a entry level course for individuals who have a computer science background who will then work in operational jobs for software engineering. So for me, I have a computer science background, but then I don't necessarily have the operational experience, but tying together uh, workflows for me to implement course source code. In the past, when you mentioned how all of everything was kind of seems like they're banded together, I would say, because of the nature of how the school stood up and we were kind of driving a bus as we we're building it, a lot of the, the concepts of courseware and code in theory were not always implemented the way we said we wanted to do it. So for me, a challenge has been to actually, as a proof of a concept, write something once and then have it apply, be used across everywhere and apply that don't repeat yourself principle so we could write the it once and then never have to worry about what formatting, or, or formatting slides, or formatting student books, or instructor books, or, or lesson plans that follow trade doc standards. So for for getting just implementing it is one. And I think what's also kind of interesting, uh, people find this in government. Sometimes uh, the technical challenges are hard, but the bureaucracy or it can be more difficult. And so the government uh, has necessary it has processes to to rotate people through jobs relatively quickly. So you'll go to assignment, you'll stay there for three years, and you'll move. And so this has a lot of benefits in that if you have a bad leader, a bad leader can't damage an organization, uh, It makes it more resilient, prevents the army from being reliant on a single individual in a single place, because the army is designed to be modular, because that's the nature of warfare, you have to be able to plug and play as a culture. But then the challenge then can be that if you build something, and you're the subject matter expert on something, then when you leave, uh, you don't want it to fall apart. And so for some institutions, they're able to institutionally, like private sector, can keep people for a long period of time, or they might have the ability to, to keep a, a good thing good, a technical, something, someone makes something that's very uh, technically successful, but keep it there. But in the Army and in government in general, it's sometimes challenging to make something survive when you leave. So for me, I think my biggest challenge, uh, one of my goals is to build something such that when I leave it will survive and not and have the, the foundation to not get replaced or, or just be so difficult that someone else couldn't pick it up and move. So when I'm talking about those pipelines, I've been working on building pipelines, documentation and all those things to make it survive when I leave so someone else can pick it up and learn it all by themselves. And so I think, I guess maybe the ultimately that comes down to is writing things down. So it's really easy to do something and keep it on your head if you're the one person who does it. But when you leave, if it's not written down and it's not written down in a way other people can access it, Then it's not really useful and it kind of goes away when you leave. So, for me, I think it's almost not really a technical challenge. It's an organizational challenge of how do you build something so it can survive beyond you when you leave the organization.
0: So, is that more about building the actual engineering workflows and scripts and stuff? Or is a lot of it about how do you document things properly?
1: I think it's a little bit of both. So, you know, people say that good code reads itself, but at the same time, documentation is a big part of it. So for example, I build a a pipeline that essentially it's somewhat convoluted. And sometimes when you're a one man team, you don't use branches, you write all on the primary branch, whether it's master or main or whatever you call it. And then you piece all these things together and it's in your free time when you're borrowing between meetings and so on. And so I have something that takes a dictionary, a directory structure format, builds a dictionary out of it and feeds it into templates to build all of these Markdown and uh, ASCII doctor and Hugo templates and so on. And so when I say like documentation, then it's really writing an actual course in that format to teach people how to use it. So I would write all the the actual learning steps and outcomes and all the the, the courseware content as an example of here's how to use it. And then it actually teaches people how to use it. So, I mean, that seems it's it's not really innovative or anything like that. It's just taking the time to write things down at an organization that kind of is always moving and growing at a breakneck speed.
0: Do you have your eye on any other... Tools or processes that could make better productivity gains from where you stand today.
1: I think right now our biggest challenge is really adoption of what we have, more than a new things. I think there, for from a productivity perspective, uh, we have proven that we what we have works in some courses, but then scaling it out to all courses is sometimes more challenging because once people get established in the way they run. It's harder to get them to change it, especially while you're teaching as you go. So I, I can't really think of any new technologies we've been looking at moving to. We tend to lean on uh, – so when, within OpenStack, you can kind of deploy whatever technology you want. So it's a, it's the back end, so you can build your middleware inside of OpenStack. So when we need a new thing, if it's open source, we can just deploy it and tear it down and so on, to, so long as it fits the licensing for that, of course. But we don't necessarily have is a, if someone wants to try something, they can try it out. So I don't necessarily know if there's necessarily anything where we'd say, I really wanted to try this, but I didn't have an opportunity to. That said, I think adoption, to get people to use what we're using across the board, many courses do do it, but some just have already been founded. They, they, getting them to adopt it and do it in a good way is sometimes challenging for us.
0: Can you make use of public cloud yet in the military?
1: I can't uh, speak to the DoD at large. I could see everyone, hopefully, if, if people are, are following this topic, they would be able to see there's the JEDI contract that's got been in the news a lot. I know that's still going through the process. I, I don't have any visibility on that, so I can't speak to what's that's at now. I know my organization, we do have access to our, our organization has Azure, so we can host things there. But for us, we use uh, the cost of hosting a significant, if you wanted to build, uh, several. We have, for example, right now we run around 7,000 compute nodes on average. If you wanted to run 7,000 compute nodes in a public cloud, or virtual virtual course rather, it would cost you a lot of money. Uh, so we take that and we put that in hardware and try to be good stewards of the taxpayer's money rather than uh, throwing it all into public cloud that's always on. Uh, so from that, from that instance, there is access to it, but we try to, when we, for example, our, our front end, we host in public cloud. So that would be things like our authentication. GitLab itself is not hosted in OpenStack. We host that in uh, an instance in Azure. Uh, so then we take advantage of their backup. But then GitLab deploys things in OpenStack, and OpenStack is all our personal hardware that we, we manage in-house, if that makes sense. So we kind of try to balance the best of both worlds there.
0: Is there anything else about building software in the military that might surprise people outside of the military?
1: I think across the board, Uh, People who are not in the military would expect that the government runs and might build its own software or things like that. But anyone who's dealt with acquisitions or understands how government works would think that the government probably buys everything. I think people would be surprised to know now is there's a growing culture within the army and across the DoD to apply DevOps and DevSecOps to the government. So things like Instead of purchasing software from someone where the private corporation might keep the rights and the government's tied to that, the government's looking for ways to, hey, how do we buy the data rights for the software too when we purchase this? Then we have the flexibility to manage it in-house. Um, Army Futures Command is also building their own developer. They call it uh, a, work, a developer factory or something like that where they're trying to apply software development to Army problems internally rather than going through an acquisition process. So then we're able to manage. We might buy something off the shelf, and then we keep the source code and we buy a data right for the source code, and then we might manage it in-house. So then we have the flexibility to update things. And so for people who maybe are familiar with the government, uh, from the negative side where it's not agile, it's not able to move, it might be surprising to see that there's efforts to move forwards like Defense Digital Services. US, USDS is the US Digital Services. They've been around for several years now and they've done a lot of good work. So there's a lot of innovation in the government to help make things better to try to make it more agile and make it use software development principles across the army and across the, across the DOD and even the federal government. And so I think for me personally, as someone who has worked in the government, it's surprising. I would say I'm surprised to see that happen and I'm really encouraged by it. And I think there's a lot of opportunity. If someone says, Hey, I want to give back to my country. How can I do it? I have technical skills. I think there's a lot of places, whether it's USDS or DDS or the army cyber school or, or uh, somewhere in Cybercom or under other federal agencies in the DoD, there's a lot of, of people who do great work every day who kind of don't get recognized. And people, they kind of know they're there, but, but there actually is a lot of people who work really hard to innovate and make the culture better. And so, so that's kind of what I would say is most surprising to me is that it kind of works and it's changing the culture across the Army to change the way it does acquisitions and change the way uh, we manage software.
0: Okay, well, Ben, it's been amazing talking to you. Anything else you want to share in closing?
1: I think we've covered a lot here. I really thank you for the opportunity, Jeff, uh, have to have us on your show and to let us tell our story at the Army Cyber School. Uh, I want to thank uh, GitLab for introducing us. And just really want to thank you for your time.